Welcome to the Untold Civil War podcast. Big thank you to our patrons on Patreon. Their support is what keeps this show going. I would like to remind all my listeners that we do have an awesome raffle coming up for my patrons. You can sign up using the link in the show notes and you will be in the running for a Confederate War Bond token and a signed copy of A Rebellious Woman by Claire Griffin. We have more raffles coming up very soon, so don't miss out and use the link in the show notes to sign up. Now back to the story on hand. Now you've heard of the Great Escape, famous World War II movie uh, about POWs escaping from a German prison, but here is the story of the greatest escape, a true story of Union POWs escaping a Confederate prison. But now, without further ado, keep quiet. The guards are doing their rounds. Now let's dig our escape to some untold civil war. Welcome to the untold civil war. And today I'm with Douglas Miller, and we'll be talking about his latest publication, The Greatest Escape, A True American Civil War Adventure. I've been reading the book. I haven't finished it yet, but I loved every page. It is a real page turner. I really enjoy it. Um, And it's a story that I did not know, actually. Um, So it really falls into the realm of untold civil war. Thank you for coming on the show. Yes, well, a lot of people, I felt that myself. You know, I'm a Civil War guy, you know, my whole life. And when I started, I was like, how have I never heard this story? That was part of my initial attraction, you know. This is interesting. I got to learn more about this, you know. Well, let's dig into that. You talk about, you know, being a Civil War guy. When did the Civil War bug bite you? And then how did that lead you to writing this book? Yeah, when I was like rolled out of the, you know, out of the birth canal, because uh, my father was a big Civil War guy, and he liked to just, you know, he was an interesting person. He was a businessman and a, a politician and did a lot of different things, and he really, he liked to read about the Civil War, so he encouraged me as a young kid. He always encouraged me to read, so they would get me little books, and then, uh, I don't know, a lot of people of my generation seem to have gotten in the Civil War from this American heritage picture history of the civil war have you ever seen that book it's like a big thick oh absolutely it's actually on my shelf somewhere here yeah (laughs) where when i was a kid that i just devoured that i started reading it and then my father took me and my brother to gettysburg and that was great i was only about eight or ten or something like that but that was fun and so off and on my whole life i've just been i've just enjoyed reading about it so i've just always enjoyed it like to read like to read different people and i like first person accounts plus i'm a filmmaker you know i make documentary films as a you know producer director i've been a cameraman been a writer and so i'm always looking for projects you know like what would make an interesting film or maybe a documentary or something or other and in this case in a history magazine decades ago they had one of the best accounts of the libby escape a first person account you know and they just had it unedited it was just there's your there's just an I read it I said this is amazing what a story then it just so happened I had a chance to go to Richmond my wife was is a costume designer she was working on a film in Richmond and I said I'll go there and research this story and sure enough in Richmond you know they love their civil war and the museums collect all kinds of stuff even though this is a Yankee story essentially and so I found all kinds of accounts I kept finding more and more accounts you know and and they were great. They were just so interesting because these guys, it was an officer's prison so they could all read and write and well. 
You know, that was one of the, there weren't a lot of other requirements for being an officer, but you had to be literate because that's how you're going to communicate most of the time. So these guys, because it was such a famous event, so many of them wrote down their accounts. I just kept finding them, you know, and I just kept going and going. It took me decades to find them all, but I found 50 accounts, 50 first person accounts of this event, which was pretty amazing. That's what the basis of the whole book is. I know from talking to my various listeners that we have some real big fans of the Irish Brigade, the Second Rhode Island, the Iron Brigade, and also Burdan's Sharpshooters. What a better way to represent your allegiance than purchasing a core badge from our sponsor, the Badge Maker. Great for reenacting, great for customizing your backpacker clothing. Link in the show notes. Right, and and just for our listeners who, um, just to get them back on the same page here, the book <laughs> is about the actual escape of prisoners at Libby Prison, Union officers, and the escape from Lizzie Pri- or Prison, and it's a daring <laughs> escapade, to say the least. Um, yeah, which I call it the greatest escape, because it is the greatest prison escape in American history. You know? And they've got some real characters. I mean, I can imagine you going through all those primary sources, but there are some very interesting characters involved in this whole thing. Yes, I absolutely. I, I, I love that aspect. You know, they're all different kinds of guys, they had different perspectives. Some escaped, some didn't, some never got out of the building, but they witnessed it. You know, there's a lot of different people and a lot of different stories. And then I was able to, you know, this is the 21st century. So I figure I, if I'm going to write a book about the Civil War, it's going to have to talk about slavery and uh, women. I have one woman in the story, but she's one of the most interesting women in American history. And so <laughs> I have that in there as well. And then I have a lot of really great slave stories, you know, encounters with slaves, which are rare. They're hard to find. And when these guys are escaping, you know, they they would just run into slaves out in the countryside. And in every case, the slaves stopped what they were doing and helped them. It's an amazing story, you know, that way. It, it truly is. And one thing you do go into the book, and I guess to, to kind of start kicking this off the story, and I think it's a good place to start, is talking about the idea of being captured and how a lot of soldiers, they can't even imagine, many didn't even imagine the idea of actually being captured. You know, maybe they talk about possibly dying, you know, on the field or um, being wounded. But being captured is almost a surprise to some of these soldiers when they write their accounts. Can you talk about that and some of the things you came yeah, across when you read these accounts? It, yeah, it interested me. You know, I got that idea going because all these guys in their accounts, when they talk about being captured, the main thing they talk about was what a surprise it was and how they were startled. And now they're like, I'm, what does that even mean to be captured? You know, in the Civil War, it kept changing, you know, prisons changed, people were moved around in the early part of the war, as you know, that I'm sure your viewers do, the uh, original thing was to parole them, they would just trade back and forth, it was a very humane system, it worked great, but <laughs> it didn't last, so at first they thought, well, I'll get captured, I'll get exchanged, I'll go home, you know, this ain't so bad, then it became very bad as the prisons became more and more crowded. But that's at the, at the beginning, they didn't, you know, nobody knew. And everybody's experience of being captured was different, you know, how you got captured. And I, I felt that people hadn't really looked into that that much. There wasn't much about in the literature and things. So, no, absolutely. And I thought what was interesting that you brought out was the fact that 
you know, when people think about being captured or surrendering, right, they think of it sort of of a passive thing to give up and surrender. But in actuality, if you look at it, the people who are being captured are people who are on the front line. These are A personalities. They're the guys who are going to be closest to the enemy. Um, so I thought that was very interesting, too, that you mentioned. Yes, particularly among officers. You know, you could say that even double for officers who got captured. What were they doing down there, you know, in the front line? And so, of course, that's what I would say that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And But it's easy to hold back. And so the guys who got captured were often some of your bravest men, bravest officers. I mean, a guy in arrears isn't going to get captured. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Want to hear more stories like this one? Check out our sponsor, History Fix. This is a new history streaming service that will give you access to documentaries covering a multitude of eras, including the Crusades, World War II, and of course, the Civil War. Link in the show notes. And But then also, too, there's this uh, connection that you talk about when they finally meet the enemy, and this is like the first time that some of these guys are actually talking to the enemy. Um, it's like their first experience, you know, maybe they've seen them on a battlefield, they fought each other, but this is when they can actually have those conversations. Yeah, it's interesting. Almost all of them talk about it. It's like there was just sort of a, a need to discuss this, I think, among these people. You know, they, they, they really were, you know, it was interesting because they had the same language. You don't see that often in war. They had the same language. They had the same religion. They had the same race, so they had a lot in common, and they also were foot soldiers in this war in common, and so it seemed like there was a natural curiosity, plus they're all pretty young, you know, they haven't been many places, you know, this is a Civil War era, you know, you know people didn't get very far from their homes, and now they're face-to-face -face with their supposed enemy, they had some very interesting conversations about it that I, you know, have in the book that they recorded. Oh, absolutely. Now, Eventually, all these officers will end up in Richmond and Libby Prison. Can you talk about Libby Prison a little bit and the conditions there? I know you said it worsened over time, but can you yeah. talk a little bit more on that? It's kind of, you know, unique is nobody knew. Nobody knew what to do about prisoners. There wasn't any plan. It had nothing been thought through. Everybody thought the war was going to be short, as we know. And uh, suddenly, they get thousands of prisoners, and they started putting them into slave pens in Richmond. And then that quickly got filled. So they took this giant warehouse building down by the river that was owned by the Libby family and it was called and they turned it into a prison they threw out you know the people that were there turned it into a prison originally they would process people through there ship them other places and they decided well we're going to have to hold on to these guys now that you know uh, exchanges are breaking down so they started out with 500 officers, and they went to 700 officers, and they went to 1,000 in the same building, and they had 1,200 in the building. So, as a you know, people think of prisons as having cells and you know, uh, uh, you know, solitary confinement. This was the opposite. These guys were so jammed in there they could barely get around. At night, they took up all the floor space. You know, they slept in rows. They were all jammed in there. The food was terrible. It was freezing in winter. It was hot in the summer. They didn't get exercise. They never let them outside ever. And it was a standalone building. And they patrolled the outside of the building. And so everybody figured, well, this is escape proof. You know, it's the Bastille of the Confederacy, they called it. But uh, these guys figured a way. Well, <laughs> do we also know anything about uh, the people who are guarding them? Like, how was that organized? There Was there a specific mm -hmm. unit? You know, it's a war went on. 
in almost every category, the South ran out of stuff. And this story, my story, the prison escape, I should say, probably is the beginning of 1864. So it's late 1863 into 1864. By that time, if you were a physically well and halfway intelligent guard, you'd probably be sent to the front and they replace it with kids and old guys. And there aren't any guard accounts, I think, because they were probably all illiterate, you know, the, the guards and stuff. I have a line in there to say, if some of the people inside the prison were some of the best people in the Union Army, best, bravest and brightest, the company guy guarding them were some of the worst guys in the Confederate Army. That's how they ended up being prison guards. <laughs> so, I mean, they had to patrol it, but it wasn't like you got the, the you know, the sharpest tax in the box out there. Right. Working. I mean, it, it goes back to what we were talking about before about, you know, the best are actually on the front lines versus, mm-hmm. you know, the, the rest in, in the rear are probably not the not the A team. Right. So these prisoners, these officers, they are trapped, you know, in Libby prison, horrible conditions, as you've mentioned. When do they start talking about an idea of escaping? How does that sort of come yeah. to the forefront? We're sort of, and you're talking about characters. There's just one of the, a bunch of guys were captured at Chickamauga where they were Midwesterners, and they seem a little more determined to escape than anybody else. And they're led by this guy, real amazing guy named Colonel Rose. He's just obsessed with his escaping. So they just keep coming up with new ideas. They have new proposals. They keep, they're constantly planning and exploring. And to make an interesting tale very short, they figure out a way to get into this abandoned part of the basement. Not totally abandoned, but it's so foul, it's called rat hell. Nobody wants to go there. They have some stories down there and Confederates are aware, but you know, who wants to go to rat hell and do anything? So almost nobody's in there. And they get down in there and they start digging. And they day after day after day, they have to sneak down and in the evening they can work until about four in the morning then they have to come back up and hide their hole hide where they are rebuild it get back to prison go to sleep and next day start again they do this for weeks digging away a little bit at a time a little bit at a time having failures you know only the third tunnel really works you know but they just don't stop that's the key (laughs) they just don't stop The Military Images Magazine Summer 2022 issue just came out and it features some awesome stories like that of spy Lafayette Baker and even Jonas Wiley, the blockade runner. We actually had an episode on Jonas Wiley, so if you enjoyed that episode and want to learn more, subscribe to the magazine using the link in the show notes. Also, in this edition was an interview with yours truly, so don't miss out on that. Use the link in the show notes. What tools are they using, if any? I mean, do we know? They're using literally like forks and pen forks and pen knives and little things. There's stories that they had a door hinge, that they had various other things, but you know, they would have dug it with their hands if they had to. It was a kind of a compacted sandy soil there, you know, down near the river, which was, you know, pretty dry, pretty stable, but you know, as you dig into the tunnel, the further you get, they have nothing to support it with. They have no wood of any sort. So the further you get in, not only are you running out of oxygen, but there's always a chance it could cave in on you, and that would be the end of you. You know, you be gone and lost forever, as they said. So it was not at all a pleasant place and a pleasant thing to do, but they were desperate. And that's part of the key, you know, they were desperate. They were feeling that they've 
is almost a scaper guy. They weren't just doing this because they had nothing else to do. And it was kind of entertaining. Like in the movie, The Great Escape, you know, these guys, they were like, if I don't get out of here, I'm going to die. People died there every day, you know, from starvation, disease, carried their bodies out. They didn't, didn't even know where they went. But it was a daily occurrence at Libby Prison. Well, I don't want to give too much away in regards to <laughs> how it turns out. Um, you know, people, I would encourage people to buy the book to get the full details. These officers, do we know exactly what happens once they break out? Well, the main thing is they get out of the prison. And when they, they do this elaborate tunnel on the night of February 9th, 1864, they go down this tunnel. The guys who dug it, mainly a group of 30 guys who kept it hidden, but they're followed by everybody wants to get out. So a giant mob scene happens. So you get ultimately 109 guys successfully get out of the prison, but they're in Richmond. They're in the Confederate capital. They still have to get to Williamsburg, Virginia, which is directly east. And it's about 50 miles away, but it's swamps. It's cold. They have no food. They have hardly any clothing. And basically every white person in Virginia is trying to catch them because it's a huge deal when this happens. The publicity is nationwide. People were so, you know, following this story, even the Confederates were impressed that this had happened. And so they all, you know, everybody went out and they still have. So anyway, the last act of the story is how they track to get overland to actually escape. They've got to get, you know, over the land some of them make it some of them don't get put back into prison in the dungeons we know anything about their uh captors or their guards i mean were they you know were they punished for this i mean yeah, you know first thing, well it just again goes to show how short, short the confederacy was of people the commander of the prison gets a huge chewing out but he's not fired and the regular guards at first they think that the only way these men could have escaped was they bribed the guards. So the first thing they do is round up all the guards and put them in prison. Then they finally find a tunnel. They go, okay, we let them out. Let them, <laughs> they're probably pretty pissed by this time. They get back to the prison. But mostly people in Virginia and, and Richmond area, they're all out looking for them, you know, on the roads and stuff. And the men head off over overland, like I said, and it's swampy, it's freezing. They can pretty much only travel at night. You know, they can't really travel during the day. They can't build fires because they might be seen. And it's a, you know, and everybody's looking for them. However, and this is another really interesting part of the story I learned, is every Black person they encounter is their friend, their instant friend. They encounter these slaves and, and some freed people, tell them who they are. And in every instance that I've been able to find, these uh, enslaved people uh, drop what they're doing and help these guys and risk their own lives to feed them, to move them, to help them, to hide them. So that's a pretty interesting part of the story. And so we're going to cause a lot of reflection on the side of the men because, you know, they all hadn't really met Southerners before. They certainly hadn't met any slaves. They probably never even met a Black person. You know, in parts of the North, over 99% of the population was white. So just to be around Black people was a, would, would have been a new thing, you know. Anyway, they're very helpful, and that's that helps a lot of these guys escape. So another thing that I found very interesting, as you talk about, you know, the news, everyone's watching this story, but this story doesn't go away even after the war. I mean, Lizzie, Libby Prison becomes sort of a, a site that people want to go see, basically, uh, uh, for amusement. After the really. war, the prison was so famous, 
Now people barely remember Andersonville, but that was only in the last nine months of the war. It was only in the last part of the war that Andersonville existed. They think part of the reason it, it existed is because of this escape, and they decided to get a lot of these prisoners out of Richmond, put them out in the countryside. Uh, yeah, after the war, 25 years after the war, it was still famous enough that a bunch of entrepreneurs bought Libby Prison. They dismantled this huge building, four stories tall, stone, put it on a train and took it all the way to Chicago, rebuilt it and called it the Libby Prison Civil War Museum. And it was filled with artifacts and people came from all over the country to go to the museum and it lasted for a while. Eventually it was uh, interest waned and it was torn down. But at the time, the Libby Prison Museum was famous. And there's the, you know, the famous uh, uh, Chicago Exposition of the late 1890s. You know, it's in Devil with the, Devil in the White City is a famous book about that. Well, this Libby Prison was outside the White City. It was another attraction to see in Chicago and people were, were it was really popular. So when they tore the building down from there, all the materials were dispersed or sold off. So we don't have, the building doesn't exist anymore. Though they have a lot of the artifacts from the museum are still in the, in the Chicago Museum. You know, it stayed in Chicago, but we're in the Libby Museum. It must have been very popular. And for 25 cents, you could go down in the basement and see a great Yankee hole and see where they, this supposedly the hole where they had set out, you know, run their escape. So, of course, it was all cleaned up and very nice and very proper by that time. There wasn't, wasn't rat hell anymore. Well, Libby Prison, obviously, from what you're saying, it was a big part of how people back then told the narrative of the Civil War, interpreted the Civil War. How do you think, looking at the story now, today, how does this help us get a better understanding of the Civil War as a whole? What is a big well, takeaway from this? Well, you know, I wrote your book with a few things in mind, and and you know, because it's for it's for the hardcore people, you know, who know a lot of this stuff, but who love to read first person accounts, right? But it's also for a general audience, and I think uh, what people remark about when they read it, and I I sort of reinforce this, is they it's it's not only about the ingenuity of these guys and the, the courage of them to do this in a terrible situation. But it's also a story of the Union underground in Richmond, which people don't know hardly anything about, and was a very effective underground of Black and white, some were even slaves, all working together to try to overthrow the Confederacy, and they were very effective in some ways. So that's an interesting part of the story, you know, that people don't know. And I also think, you know, general readers, they remark sometimes about, boy, I thought America was divided now. I go, yeah, yeah, well, it is divided now, but nothing like yours in the Civil War. <laughs> you know, you have people on the other side starving to death in prisons, you know, and stuff like that. So that's an interesting thing. I think an aspect which people, you know, looking for, from the present, they, they should think in those terms, you know, how has it changed? How has it affected people? Oh. So it's a couple untold stories and uh, the bigger narrative is interesting too. Oh, absolutely. I, I always tell people, you know, one thing about looking back at the Civil War is that if we can survive that and keep moving forward, we can certainly survive, you know, what we have in the future coming at us because the Civil War was probably one of the hardest times, if not the hardest time for the United States, right? Yes, well, absolutely. It's almost, you know, it was pretty, pretty close thing. You know, <laughs> in many ways, it's amazing that the country survived as well as it did. 
while you were going through the process of writing this book, uh, I, I would like to know how did that, ch did it change you in any way as an historian or how you look at history? Well, yes, because again, because I'm reading all these first person accounts and I have to evaluate them, you know, because who's, you know, some are more truthful than others. An interesting factor is that the closer they, that the memoir is to the war, the angrier the person is about how they were treated and stuff. And when it gets 20, 30 years later, they're like, yeah, I wasn't really, I don't know if it was that, you know, it wasn't so bad. And I had friends, you know, and we had music and we had church meetings and we had, you know, classes. And because they did all these crazy things in the, in the prison to keep them entertained. You know, they had French classes and legal classes and medical classes. And people talked about phrenology. That was a big thing religion of spiritualism all this stuff all going on in this place at the same time with all these guys in it you know it was here we're all on top of each other at all times so i learned a lot from these reading these guys accounts just because you know you really get close to the person what they're interested in you know like one guy who's very religious who's always seeing religious signs and things that happen you know i prayed to god and then this happened for me and then there's other people who were of a very opposite idea artists there were lawyers there were actors there were all kinds of people in the prison that made for an exciting interesting dynamic brings up two things here one of them you know you talk about getting to know these people uh are there any specific i know you've mentioned a few but were there any specific characters you'd like to mention that you really feel like you know you could have a beer with this guy you know that you really connected with well, yeah, because some of them would start out, you know, I was just a regular guy from Ohio. Well, I'm a regular guy from Ohio. So, <laughs> you know, maybe that. And they talk about, you know, they're farmers. They're in this difficult situation. And they're often trying to put it together themselves, trying to understand it, understand how they ended up being treated that way, where it was worth it. They became, most of them became very patriotic by the experience. It certainly didn't break them. It made them more proud it's an interesting thing that the guys who did escape who actually ultimately escaped almost as far as i can tell almost every one of them went back into service so they didn't just escape and go home they went back to their units some of them had the amazing experience of of marching past libya as part of the liberating union army you know imagine the experience of that and, uh, you know, coming back into town where you'd been in prison and almost died in your state. Now you're back as a part of the conquering army. You know, that must have been an, an amazing event. Number of them talked to you about this was the key event of my life. You know, this escape. This was, a, you know. I just recently got an update from our sponsor, the Excelsior Brigade. They have in stock some amazing letter groupings. For any historian or collector, these are a gold mine. What a fantastic opportunity to own the wartime letters of a Civil War chaplain or even the letters of a Civil War surgeon. These relics can be part of your library. You can learn more using the link in the show notes. I'm surprised that the prison wasn't burned down and survived. Well, it was stern. It would have been hard. When, when, they, when Lincoln came to Richmond, you know, right after the fall of the city uh, at the beginning of April in 1865, crowd gathered he wanted to see Libby they wrote him by Libby the crowd says we'll tear it down we're you know we'll destroy he goes no no he says leave it as a monument that was Lincoln's words 
and so that's what happened. And so it's, it's like I say, they, they did sort of tear it down and move it, but it still lasted as a monument for a long, long time. And it's, you can go to visit the site today. What's interesting is right behind the site. The site itself is just a parking lot because they moved it away and it has a seawall in there to protect the city. But right on the spot, or even on part of it, is the current the Virginia Holocaust Museum. So it's kind of interesting. That's right there on the in the same space right near it. Richmond has a lot of, of course, as you know, a lot of Civil War sites, a lot of interesting Civil War things there. Absolutely. I mean, right now, I, I didn't do this on purpose, but I'm sipping tea from uh, my American Civil War Museum mug, which is covered in beards of the Civil War. All right. Um, but it's great. from the museum there in Richmond. And it's a great yeah. museum. I do recommend it. Yeah, I was just at the Museum of Civil War Medicine, which is in Frederick, Maryland. That's very interesting. You know, that's another that's not very far away. And I did a big tour take going and which are all kinds of I went to dozens of Civil War sites to, to talk about my book and get people interested in it. And, you know, that was really fun, too. I went everywhere from, you know, Andersonville to Bull Run to I mean, just goes on and on. There's all kinds of Monocacy, which I didn't know much about or Gettysburg, which I did or Antietam. But it was been very interesting. And people were very interested in, in the book because it's just not for Civil War fans. It's for anybody that likes true adventures, you know. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, you really live in the dream there. You know, you're, I'm looking <laughs> at you going, oh, that's what I want to do, you know. <laughs> Well, these stories don't come around a lot, but like I said, I had a lot of good things break my way. And also when I was working on it, part of the reason it took so long in the early days is because it goes back, <laughs> hate to say it goes back before the internet. Well, before the internet, it was really hard to find a lot of these accounts. Suddenly though, when they were putting them on the internet and when they were doing Google books, right? A lot of what they put on were these Civil War books because they're popular and they're in a public domain. That was not, that really helped me. There were some obscure books that I'd heard about that I didn't even know where to find a copy or get a copy. Some of them are so fragile, they wouldn't even let me copy the book. Suddenly they're online and boom, 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 there's a new account. There's another new account. You know, that was really helpful. That was great to come up with more accounts. You know, probably there's some out there still that I haven't, that I never found. You know, for all I know, there could be another couple of good accounts out there that I didn't find. And there were a number of also accounts of guys who were in the prison at different times because it you know it stayed a prison through the whole war so tons and tons of guys passed through it or were there after it or were there before you know the actual escape right to separate those stories too out of them you know or find out when was the guy there and then also people tend to talk a lot about things they heard so i'm always trying to separate this guy heard this but he doesn't know what he's talking about but he says, I saw this with my own eyes, then I pay attention. You know, this is something I did. So you're always trying to, you know, separate that too. Well, that was going to be my next question. One of the things I've done on the show, and I've actually done this on the YouTube side of things. So I recommend my listeners to check that out. There's separate content on the video side of things. But uh, one thing is I like to talk about the primary sources and reading those primary sources. But as you stated, sometimes reading, you can't just read them and take them for face value, you know, and, or, you know, take them yeah. for their as gospel. Let's put it that way. Uh, there's a way to read and interpret primary sources. What is your method to, when you read these? Well, things? I, as I say in the beginning of the book, my book is that, you know, I use the 
the primary sources as much as I could, because they're often they're better than me at describing this is what they saw. You know, they're telling that story about how to cook. Why do you use somebody else? You know, use that account. It's an exciting account. And uh, so I was trying to always use, you know, the original accounts when I could, but they were they were also enjoyable to read, but you had to read them critically. You know, you had to know, you know, again, sometimes people would be having different angles, but it was very interesting, you know, to have an event and have another people who was other person who was there have his version of the event and then another guy. And uh, that was really it really helped me a lot to find, you know, finding him that way. Well, that, that's fantastic. And I think that's a big thing for people, you know, young historians who are trying to learn more and write more about how to actually use primary sources because effective history storytelling is using those primary sources, which you yes, do. And also in this case, you know, these guys, they were all Yankees. So when the war's over, they all went home all over the North. So some guy gave a speech in Michigan, another guy, you know, submitted a paper in Connecticut, you know, so these things were scattered everywhere, you know, my part of the great escape, that kind of thing. And or they'd have them, you know, back then they used to, uh, people would write in the local newspaper, you know, just be an article or about, you know, Uncle Dave and his part at Gettysburg, you know, he decides suddenly to write it down. He's now in his sixties and suddenly it appears and it's, you know, they're often, there's always something fascinating about them. One thing I did is I did make them shorter. I didn't change the orders or anything, but I did, people back then would tend to ramble on about things that don't, yeah, we'd get off to, I mean, it was just the way people did things back then because they all do it. You know, it's like, no, we're telling this story. I'm going to cut this part, this sentence out and then get back to the story. So I did that. I made it collapse that way. But otherwise, I didn't touch it. And I didn't touch uh, racial language, which is, you know, always very controversial, was controversial then and is today. So I just left it the way it was, because I think that's what a real historian wants to read. You know, what did they actually say? What term did they use? How did, what was their mindset? You know, that kind of thing. And then you find it's, you know, all kinds of interesting things happen. You've got these guys who are calling black people darkies. At the same time, they're talking about ladies, you know, getting killed in a war against slavery. So it's a real mix of things in your head at the same time. People aren't so clear. And even when you talk about racism, racism wasn't even a term then. Nobody even, you know, so, so it's hard to even talk about it. But race was very important. And, and that's interesting. And they all had to wrestle with it. So I talk about it in the book because it was on their minds too. And you're also young men, so they're sort of discovering it, you know, writing, you know, if they had encountered slaves, they're like, you know, this isn't, you know, I've never encountered, this is interesting, you know, I don't know, don't know anything about how a plantation works or any of that stuff. They all sort of been told, eh, slavery isn't so bad, you know, <laughs> what's a big deal? Of course, I was white people telling them that. And then they get down and they got to see it. And, you know, it turned a lot of them against it even more. You know, it, you never can predict how people are going to react. But and if you're interested in this side story, but I, I think it's a good one. This is my own great grandfather. So that's not going very far back. Dad's grandpa, he, or my, my, my grandma's, my grandma's father, right? So he was in the Civil War. And he, at the beginning, before the war, he was a Norwegian immigrant in Norway, Iowa. And he took a flatboat down the river to, to New Orleans and to deliver goods, right? That's what people did back then, right before the war. And they said, he says, well, you know, what do we do now in New Orleans? Somebody told him, well, you know, one thing we, it's fun to do is you can go up and watch the slave market 
which is still marked there in New Orleans. So he went and we don't know what happened, but whatever happened, he was so upset that when a war broke out, he enlisted in the Union Army, went off to fight, had a tough time, we know, <laughs> and uh, was in Vicksburg and some other places. And then after the war, actually, he became a Quaker pacifist. So it was interesting. After experiencing the war, he was like, well, I, I don't think this is a solution. So he, you know, anyway, it's an interesting guy. You never could have predicted it. He just came over from Norway. Suddenly he's in a couple of years, he's in the Civil War. He's like, hey, I just got here. I'm like 19. What the hell do I know? I don't even know if he could speak English very well. One of the things, I mean, it's interesting to bring that up. And one of the things I thought was interesting reading the book was also talking about uh, not just slavery, but why people are fighting the war. There is one character who was a Hungarian soldier yes. right, before he comes to uh, the United States. And he enlists in the Union Army, right? And is serving in the Union Army and he's captured. And they have a moment where the Confederate, there's a Confederate soldier talking to him and he says, I don't understand why you're fighting for the Union. This is the same, I think it's the 1848 revolution over there in Hungary. Yeah, yeah, Hungary and he said, yeah. yeah, isn't this like, don't you see that we're, it's the same thing as you. And he comes back with absolutely not. The U.S. is this great place, this great dream that we need to uphold and keep as a sort of beacon of hope, I guess. Uh, maybe I'm putting too many words in his mouth, but it was sort of the idea that I got. Yeah, yeah it's what he says. And then he goes on to say, we, we chatted away until we fell asleep. So him and his Confederate just basically talked about the war right until he dropped off. Yeah, he's an interesting guy. He was a, you know, a, he's a great point of view in the prison because he's this sort of European aristocrat and the uncouth ways of the American officers are a little bit much for him. He can't believe some of the things that go on in there. And these are among officers, you know, and stuff. So that's not the way he was raised. Of course, he's furious when he's captured because somebody takes away his silver spurs. He tries to get him back, and then, you know, it's pretty forlorn hope. <laughs> Tough, you know, but you're our prisoner. We get to take your stuff. As you said, I, I understood the war, laws of war differently, but it doesn't matter when you're in a subservient role what you think the rules are. That's just one of the very interesting characters in the book. And, and so please tell us, I know we're getting to be a little bit close to that time, but where can people get your book? How can they get access to you, learn more about you? Yeah, well, there's a, uh, I have a website. It's called thegreatestescapebook.com. So if you do that, always one word, thegreatestescapebook.com, you come to my website. We have a few things up there. We're putting some more stuff up. There's some reviews. I got a great review in Civil War Times magazine. Then you could, so you can order the book through your local bookstore, which I would recommend, or, or and Barnes and Noble has it, or you could go to amazon and order it from them and one thing that's nice at amazon even if you're not ordering from them, they have lots of reviews i have dozens of reviews and boy they're great it's fun people really like it so you can get it right from from amazon and the publisher tells me even though we had we released during covid which made it hard to get any publicity you know groups aren't meeting there's no conventions there's no recreationists doing anything so it was really hard to get the word out but the publisher tells me it's selling well and well enough that they, they're going to release a paperback in the summer. So that'll be fun. Hey, it even has a lot of pictures. 
<laughs> you can't go wrong with this book. You, you can't go wrong. Absolutely. Multiple illustrations. It's great that there were so many, you know, a lot of these accounts had illustrations in them. The, one of our guys that's in the prison, a very interesting guy. He's, he's a Cuban American who would go up in balloons and sketch the Confederate positions. And he gets captured at Gettysburg. So now in Libby, he not only writes about it, but he makes all these interesting drawings of what he sees down there. He was an interesting guy and later became a, a hero of Cuba's first revolution. But that's a whole other story. These are amazing nuggets. And as I said at the beginning of this is I, I haven't finished the book. I will. It's a real page turner. I've been, love, I've been loving reading this thing. It's great talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, and anybody you know, on my website, there's a contact me. I, I love hearing from anybody. So if anybody has any questions and stuff like that, let me know. And we're adding things to the website too. We did a trip where we found where our main guy, Rose, our main character actually was captured. There's actually a marker there in, in the woods in Chickamauga. And we found it, which was very much, very exciting to find a plaque deep in the woods that's got his name on it that this is where he got captured so that's and I great. that after the book and but now i put it up on my website <laughs> oh i'm i'm definitely going to put uh links in the show notes so people can access yeah. that because that's very that's awesome yeah very interesting i enjoy your show i listen to you know so many of your podcasts so it's quite entertaining and i you know keep them up i enjoy it thank you <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that episode as you sipped on some freshly brewed coffee, chowing down on blueberry pancakes, marching through Georgia with Sherman, or marching through Pennsylvania with Longstreet, or whenever you listen to podcasts. Speaking about marching, summer is a great time to hit the trail. A solid hike is good for the body and good for the soul. What better way is there to enjoy a hike than to walk in the literal footsteps of the great armies of the Civil War? Our sponsor, Civil War Trails, can help you do that. Just use the link in the show notes to plan your next vacation. And don't forget, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and I hope you tune in next time to our next episode.